Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's June the 16th, 2021. Uh, sorry, not June, July the 16th, 2021. Uh, and the headlines today, or some of the headlines at least, are all about America's rather sad, perhaps even pathetic retreat from Afghanistan. Um, apparently, according to the AP today, uh, the U.S. is evacuating uh, Afghans who aided the American military. This has become a, a big controversy. There are the inevitable video, or viral videos of the so-called Taliban executing uh, Afghan commandos who helped the Americans. And just as uh, America now is retreating from Afghanistan after being, I think, to, in all fairness, defeated there, uh, there's more and more talk about the Americans doing the same thing in Iraq. Um, apparently, uh, the U.S. coordinator in Iraq and the Iraq prime minister uh, recently met. Um, and of course, the officials are denying that American troops are pulling out of Iraq. Denials usually suggest uh, some sort of truth. Uh, meanwhile, G.W. Bush has been very critical of, of Joe Biden's Afghanistan uh, withdrawal, saying that um, the consequences are going to be unbelievably bad and sad. Uh, and surprise, surprise, uh, Fox is jumping all over Bush's critique of Biden to suggest also that, uh, that this retreat will be sad and bad. Um, one could, I think, fairly say that GW's original invasion of uh, Afghanistan and, and in Iraq was particularly sad and bad. Uh, my guest today on the show, he was on the show last year. His new book is out now in paperback, To Start a War, How the Bush Administration Took America into Iraq, a very critical book and a very good book about uh, the Bush Administration's responsibility for the Iraq war. Uh, Robert Draper, old friend, very, very good American journalist, very critical of the Bush regime. Uh, Robert uh, did your stomach turn when you saw those Bush remarks about the Afghan withdrawal from uh, on 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 this sadness and badness uh, remarks from from our former president? Well, it's Andrew. It's certainly um, a notable series of remarks by Bush, given how silent he was throughout the Trump presidency when President Trump was vowing to do precisely the same thing that Joe Biden is now doing. And of course, it's ironic as well to be hearing Fox News pilloring Biden for this, given that this had been Trump's objective all along to um, pull out all the troops from Afghanistan and from Iraq uh, to end, as he put it, you know, the forever wars. And, and uh, now that Biden is doing so, um, we haven't heard any attaboys from Trump, of course. And in the meantime, we're hearing uh, all these denunciations uh, from other conservatives. As for Bush, you know, I mean, he's he has a point. It's just not much of a point. I mean, the 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 point is that um, um, I mean, it is a point that that um, that there will almost certainly be bloody repercussions uh, to 
the the um, U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. But as Biden said in remarks that could have been scripted by um, uh, the man he beat last November, um, you know, I'm I can't justify uh, uh, the risk of losing one more of someone's sons or daughters um, in Afghanistan. It's uh, and, and to your point, Andrew, uh, I mean, we, we had a purpose after 9-11 in going to Afghanistan. That was to route the Taliban um, fr uh, from power and uh, to decimate al-Qaeda and hopefully track down um, bin Laden. Uh, uh, some of that happened then, other parts of it happened later. But our investment in Afghanistan became over the years quagmire-like. And uh, though it was always a, you know, a wonderful story to see Af um, Afghan girls going to school, uh, and I don't mean to mitigate the significance of that, um, the ability of the United States on its own to sustain that kind of climate has always been a dubious one. And Biden just finally um, said um, that it wasn't worth the risk. If you're like me, keeping up with the news has become a real pain. All the best news sites are locked behind paywalls. And the free stuff is just clickbait and fake news that no one should waste their time on. Imagine an app where you can get unlocked access to the reliable news sites. An app that filters out fake news and clickbait but still shows you every story from multiple perspectives to counter bias. Where good news, as in positive stories, is highlighted so you don't become despondent. And where journalists dig through news from around the world to find stories you normally wouldn't see. That's what an innovative Australian startup called Inkle, I-N-K-L, has come up with. Inkle.com has signed partnerships with more than a hundred news sources like The Economist, The Atlantic and Bloomberg and created a unique system combining journalists and algorithms to create a best of news feed. The service unlocks more than $12,000 of premium news for a hundred bucks a year. If you go now to inkle.com forward slash keen, they'll give you an additional 25% discount. So you can get a whole year's worth of headache-free news for just $75. That's inkle.com forward slash keen. Um, Robert, uh, as you know, uh, Amer uh, American foreign policy analysts often compare war and sports, and American sports don't do draws. You either have wins or losses. Would it be fair to say that both the Afghan and, and Iraq wars were failures, or will they be viewed as failures uh, by future generations of historians? Iraq, without, without question, um, Andrew. I think that, um, as my book um, hopefully elucidates, I mean, the facts are really in now that that was a, a misguided war done poorly and with um, horrible outcomes. You can make the argument that Saddam was um, a bad person. Actually, there's no argument on the other side to say he was a fine person. But you can get into an argument as to whether the world is better off without Saddam Hussein, as opposed to whoever uh, the, uh, you know, as opposed to ISIS, for example. 
Afghanistan's a little trickier because as I alluded to before, um, we did have a, immediate objectives after September the 11th. Uh, um, the Taliban was refusing to turn over uh, Al-Qaeda. They continued to give safe haven to them and that alone was reason to go in and remove the Taliban by force. The additional reason was, as I say, to, to um, try to destroy as much of um, the organization that perpetrated the attack on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon as we could. And uh, uh, so that too was a rationale. But then to try to stand up a democracy in Afghanistan and to support it through the military and uh, to withdraw only to recognize that um, the Taliban was resurging and then to go back in again, just became this, um, this, this endless cycle uh, that was reminiscent of you know what um, of the Soviet war with Afghanistan and, and yeah. others who had gone to war in Afghanistan. It, it just simply, as um, President Biden has said, was unsustainable. And and frankly, again, that plays to Trump's instincts as well. Bush, you know, it's part of his legacy, and I don't mean to sound cynical about it. I know that that he and um, First Lady Laura Bush um, felt deeply invested in an emotional level and on in the future of Afghanistan. Uh, and in democratization there, but democracy did not take. And um, the time was going to come when when we were going to have to leave. And when we did leave, there would in fact be um, bloody consequences. You know, it's, it's a pity, but it's inevitable too. Well, it's worse than a pity. It's a tragedy. Um, Robert, we had, I'm sure you know, one Carl. He's a University of Michigan, very distinguished historian authored all sorts of books on uh, Islamic society, including a, a recent bestseller about Muhammad. We had him on earlier this week. Uh, he's also a popular blogger. Uh, and in the interview, he, he said to me that he thought the Iraq war was the biggest foreign policy blunder in the history of the United States. So w where would you put it? You're a historian also of American misadventure overseas. Yeah, I, I mean, it's. let's just say, Andrew, that at the moment it's impossible to fathom a misadventure um, in foreign policy committed by an American president that had so many unintended and tragic consequences to it while not fulfilling any objective other than the removal from power of, of a single person um, who, as awful as he was to his own people, posed absolutely no threat to America. It is now abundantly clear that the, um, the stated case for invading Iraq, um, a country that had not attacked us nor had threatened us, um, that that case uh, to remove the weapons of mass destruction arsenal that Saddam had was phony through and through. And so um, given that the pretext for war uh, was itself um, uh, false, and given that um, the outcome was, um, you know, uh, thousands upon thousands of uh, American soldiers dead, uh, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis dead, and uh, nothing that bears any semblance of stability either to Iraq um, in particular or more broadly to the region, it's hard not to classify this as just an absolutely colossal failure. In terms of responsibility, uh, Robert, I, I want to get to G.W. Bush, but of course, um, Donald Rumsfeld just died uh, at 88. He lived a long life. Uh, he now knows the unknown unknown of death. Uh, none of us will know that till we die. Uh, the New York Times headline in his obit said that uh, he still claimed that 
the removal of Saddam Hussein had created a more stable and secure world, which is obviously untrue. To what extent, though, and, and I know you deal with this in great detail in your book, was the Iraq war a logistical fuck-up, um, uh, to which Rumsfeld, I think, more than anyone else, is is responsible? Well, certainly the commission of the war. I mean, there, there are individuals in Bush world who continue to say the Iraq war was a fine idea executed poorly. And when they um, point to the poor execution of the war, they are in essence blaming it on Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, whose idea it was to um, to go in with as light a force as possible and to leave as quickly as possible to, as he would often put it, take the hands off the bicycle seat um, so that the Iraqis can learn to ride the bicycle by themselves, a rather condescending um, description of the Iraqis, but also one that was foolhardy because it presupposed that going into um, a china shop with a bull and then leaving it um, would um, would allow those people you know left in the wake to um, to very tidily clean things up uh, the, the but I think that that Rumsfeld as um, aggravating a character as he may have been and as um, poorly uh, planned and executed as his um, uh, his invasion force was, was in a lot of ways not nearly as responsible um, as uh, the Deputy Secretary of State, Paul Wolfowitz, who gave uh, um, his second in command, who really, I think, gave um, more than any other individual um, the uh, the thought in Bush's head. The doctrine. I mean, it, it even has a formal name, uh, the, the Wolfowitz Doctrine, which was essentially a... a, a, a a liberal imperialist doctrine of democratic dominoes, wasn't it, uh, Robert? Well, it, it was, and it also supplied a kind of moral force after September the 11th. So Wolfowitz did two things. First, in the immediate, right after September 11th, he was the one who said to President Bush, let's go after Saddam. And a lot of people said, this guy is crazy, don't do that. But but Wolfowitz succeeded in getting on Bush's radar uh, the notion of attacking a country that had nothing whatsoever to do with the attacks on 9-11, so there is that. But in addition to that, Wolfowitz, as you're alluding to, Andrew, gave a kind of moral force to the argument um, uh, for invading Iraq. Not just that we needed to depose Saddam because he was a threat to us, but also that it presented an opportunity to help democratize um, a part of the world that um, had not been democratized, that was um, uh, in many ways strategically a threat to Israel and by extension, therefore, to us. So there are any number of um, of uh, birds that could be killed with that one stone. And, and so for that reason, Wolfowitz gets um, a lot of the responsibility for, uh, for the war in Iraq. Is he still He's still alive, Wolfowitz, right? Yeah, 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 he is. He is. Do any all- of these people, and of course, another character in the Hall of Shame is Dick Cheney. His daughter now is a hero, uh, ironically, on the left, because she's willing to stand up to Bush, uh, to, uh, sorry, not to Bush, to, uh, to Trump. But um, have we forgotten about Cheney's responsibility uh, in this hall of shame? What was his role? Oh, I, I doubt anybody has forgotten. And if anything, Andrew, they probably overemphasized Cheney's role, which is not to say that it was not significant. Cheney was vociferous 
um, uh, in the weeks after September 11th, all the way until the invasion, that Saddam absolutely had to go by military force, and that doing so would remove a chief threat to the United States because Saddam absolutely had weapons of mass destruction. Cheney said all of that. But the notion that, that the vice president of the United States convinced this president to go to war, I think, um, is unfounded. I think that that ultimately the responsibility for the invasion of Iraq um, falls to the commander in chief. And the evidence to me is pretty clear that um, Bush took to the idea after September 11th um, pretty quickly, uh, saw the merit to it, uh, did not expose himself to the arguments against it, the closest who came was Secretary of State uh, Colin Powell, and he didn't come very close at all. He just sort of warned him of a few un unintended consequences, but nobody in his in, in um, his proximity said to the president, don't do this. And he did not invite that kind of counter argument. So I think that it's really, um, it, was, it was Bush's war. It's not Cheney's war, it's not Wolfowitz's war, it's Bush's. If we stand back, uh, Robert, wasn't this kind of war inevitable? America got very lucky in the last part of the 20th century in terms of these successful small imperial wars. They kept on getting away with it. They got away with it partly because of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, but in Iraq, an Iraq fiasco, a debacle was inevitable. And they wandered into it, particularly uh, under a man like George Bush, who wasn't the most reflective of people. Um, do you think there was a degree of inevitability about it? No, no, there was no inevitability to it. The, the, not, not the war itself, but right. this scale of disaster. Well, no, I think the inevitability was September the 11th. I mean, that was inevitable, that we had received plenty of warnings about that, and the Bush administration did not heed those warnings. And, and, I'm, and you know, while laying blame for that at the feet of the Bush administration. I should also say that the Clinton administration was slow to react to Osama bin Laden's organization as well. But now this is, this, um, it, you know, uh, a, a lot of hawks, uh, a lot of Republicans love to point to the fact that Gore had said a lot of antagonistic things uh, towards um, uh, relating to Saddam Hussein, which by no means is to guarantee that in the wake of September 11th, uh, a President Gore would have attacked a country that had nothing whatsoever to do with um, the September 11th attacks. And and no, I think, and, and for that matter, um, it's hard to imagine Bill Clinton going to war. It's hard to imagine Bush's father going to war under circumstances like this. In fact, his father had the opportunity to go into Iraq after Operation Desert Storm and rout Saddam Hussein and elected not to because that was not the mission of the coalition that they that he had helped put together. So no, this is, um, this is uniquely George W. Bush's war. What about the, the broader consequences of the war? We've had a number of shows since you appeared on the, on the show last year about politics in the Middle East, the various catastrophes. We had the Lebanese-based uh, BBC journalist Kim Khattas, excellent new book, prize-winning book, Black Wave, about the sectarian violence between the Shia and Sunni, which she argues has been inspired by American misadventures in the Middle East. To what extent has the whole history of the region been shaped because of the disaster in Iraq? Well, so I guess to back into that, I mean, the, the short answer is 
a great deal, but it's also the case that that region has been shaped by the cynicism of the Cold War in which the United States played um, a key role, but not the only role. Uh, both uh, the Soviet Union and the U.S. were essentially using various countries as proxies for their own battles. Um, uh, Iran very famously tied up with the Soviet Union. Iraq became the enemy of the enemy that we embraced in the 1980s, attested to by uh, envoy Donald Rumsfeld going over and infamously shaking Saddam um, Hussein's hand. It, and you know, once it became clear that the Cold War was over, um, uh, a lot of our alliances in um, that part of the world fell away. And, and in turn, the scales, I think, fell away from the eyes of, of, um, of a number of countries that we were fair weather friends. So, so um, this was a part of the history that, that the Bush administration failed to appreciate when they assumed that, um, uh, that we would be you know, welcomed with, um, with flowers and candies when we invaded Iraq. And, and uh, the hubris in imagining that rather than recognizing all the things that could go wrong um, certainly are part of the heritage of that war that, that live on. And in Kim's book, which I have not yet read, but I'm sure it's quite good because she's a remarkable journalist, I'm sure that, that, um, that she has chronicled quite well you know, how the hostilities that the, that the Shia have towards us um, have uh, been, you know, have, have built over the decades, uh, you know, as a result of our own policies and our own misadventures that um, predate the Iraq war, but certainly culminated. Robert, what about Syria? We had the, uh, the CNN journalist Clarissa Ward. She has a new autobiography about, about her experiences in Syria, the, the tragic nature of the civil war. How much can the, civil, the Syrian civil war and the enormous bloodshed and suffering be blamed on, um, on, the, on, on, on Bush's invasion of Iraq? Well, it's, um, it's difficult to say. I mean, it's clear that, that the, um, the beneficiaries of uh, the Iraq war, the immediate ones were uh, Iran, Syria, and that when um, uh, <clears throat> one, of our, one of our diplomats uh, Ryan Crocker, when he came over to Iraq, I think in 2006 or so, or 2007, uh, and was eyeing all the disturbances there, he he told me later that that all of the forces that he saw were essentially the same forces that he saw way back in the 1980s in Lebanon. Um, there were the Syrians, there were the Iranians, and and uh, uh, that essentially exploiting uh, the chaos that had been left in the wake of of um, uh, of of you know the Iraq misadventure, I mean it's you know there, there's there's so many complicated components that go into uh, discussion about Syria in particular. That it's hard to say that that um, you know this was a country that we could have um, found some kind of common language with or or brought to heel, but for the Iraq misadventure. But there is no doubt. But do you think that, it would be fair to say, Robert, that Iraq has made Americans, in particular American foreign policy people, very, very tentative on any foreign policy involvement. So yeah. whereas we jumped in or you jumped into Iraq uh, based on lies and misadventure and stupidity, uh, the Syrian civil war was the right war, the moral war to become involved in. And of course, Americans chose to step back uh, which resulted in terrible bloodletting and the continual survival of, of, of a regime which in many ways is even worse than the Saddam Hussein regime. Well, and it's interesting that you say that, Andrew, because I, I do know from other former members of the Obama White House that Vice President Joe Biden's views 
um, towards foreign policy were very much informed by how he felt like he had been misled, allowed himself to be misled, I should phrase it, uh, in the run-up to war in Iraq. He was inclined to support President Bush, inclined after 9-11 to uh, be part of this bipartisan alliance. And he came to see the hard way the things that can go wrong in armed conflict. I think that that's not only why um, uh, he you know, was not forceful in pushing Obama um, as regards Syria, but also why Biden was very reluctant to sign on to um, Obama's decision uh, to join the NATO airstrikes in, in Libya. Uh, because once again, he had seen, you know, how uh, these things can attenuate into unforeseen consequences. We had uh, also the, um, I guess you would call him the the, the liberal, somewhat anti-Zionist uh, writer, Peter Beinart on the show. He had a book out, The Good Fight, Why Liberals and Only Liberals Can Win the War on Terror and Make America Great Again. I think that was back in the Iraq times. He was a supporter of the war. Christopher Hitchens famously was a supporter of the war. Uh, our old friend George Packer has a piece or had a piece in The New Yorker about how uh, Hitchens invested himself enormously in this supposed moral war to get rid of um, to get rid of Saddam Hussein. It's all very well blaming Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz, but what about the liberal left, the Hitchens and the Beinarts of the world, who also were in favor? There was a I know there were people who were against the war, but there was a broad consensus that this was a just war, and you write about this in To Start a War. I do. I devote an entire chapter to it because you're absolutely right, Andrew. I mean, I think that that um, while it's impossible to prove a counterfactual in this case, that if there had been real pushback from the left, um, and I, by which I mean the liberal intelligentsia and not just the masses, that um, that war would have been prevented. While it's impossible to prove that, what we do know is that Bush was offered practically a glide path from that intelligentsia. And, and it's remarkable to see the number of individuals, including prominent editors-in-chief today of prominent magazines and, and newspaper columnists uh, who... Um, who were very much of the view that this needed to happen and th this war for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons, well, maybe three. Um, one of the reasons was that some of these journalists had seen the atrocities committed by Saddam against his own people, and so they were very predisposed against him, but they somehow conflated um, uh, Saddam's maltreatment of his people with Saddam being a threat to the United States. Um, another is that... Um, Liberals have become to be a little more bullish about war, uh, not only because the um, Operation Desert Storm lasted a total of 100 hours, uh, but also because um, the uh, wars in Serbia and Kosovo uh, had proved that um, um, to a lot of the left that, uh, that America could be a force for good and not get itself involved in a quagmire. And then the final thing that I will say that, about um, uh, that, that is a little more sympathetic to, in particular, journalists on the left is that it was very hard then to ferret through um, the opaqueness of intelligence community claims about um, uh, Saddam having weapons of mass destruction. Now, there were, there were some news organizations, most notably uh, the Knight Ritter Group, um, that um, 
looked at all this with a heightened degree of skepticism. But there were a lot of us in the media community um, who were inclined to say that, well, uh, who knows better than the intelligence community? And they're saying Saddam almost certainly has weapons. Now, that was a gross misread of what the intelligence community had and of what they were saying. But that was the narrative that was being accepted by um, the media and by a lot of liberals. And my sense is those liberals are now profoundly bewildered by Americans' role in the world today. A typical example of this is Ben Rhodes. He was Obama's point person on Syria. And in fact, in um, in uh, um, in um, uh, Clarissa Ward's book about Syria, she writes very critically about Ward say, uh, about a road saying that she sent him an email suggesting that she basically hopes she's, he's sleeping well as Aleppo burns. I, I, got, I don't know whether you've read uh, Rhodes's new book after the fall. It's been mocked by many people. Um, what should Iraq have taught liberal Americans about and then uh, taking the, the, the subtitle of, of, of Rhodes's book, uh, being in American in the world we've made, a world we've made post-Iraq, not just post-fall of the Berlin Wall and, uh, and 9-11. Sure. Well, I mean, I, the, the, the things that we should learn from that debacle are the things that were there um, uh, to have known all along. In other words, they're they're fairly self-evident. You know, one of them is is uh, um, war is messy and things go wrong, and um, and and their the first order consequences are difficult enough, and it's best to um, uh, to not wear rose-colored lens when appraising those. But that there are second and third order consequences that barely escape the imagination. And the second one is is um, to not assume that um, that the rest of the world views us as a force for good. And in fact, to try to see um, the world and us in the world through their eyes and how they have regarded us through all the years. It doesn't necessarily have to guide everything that we do in foreign policy. But the but the Bush administration grossly underestimated. Um, the kind of blowback that they would get within that region because they were just on, operating under the assumption that, hey, we're the good guys. We've always done good things. Democracies are wonderful. People crave democracies. And this in particular was Bush's um, uh, you know, influence on the, on the whole thing. His belief was that people want freedom more than anything else in the world. Well, well, well very briefly, um, Robert, um, we had David Stasavage on the the rise, uh, the decline and rise of democracies. He has a, a uh, he's the New York uh, New York University sociologist, uh, historian of democracy. He has a whole chapter on the Middle East of why democracy historically hasn't been successful, associated with the role of state power. Why do you think democracy couldn't and well certainly hasn't succeeded in Iraq? Well, it has in so many other post-colonial societies, you know, from Taiwan to, in some senses, Thailand. Um, is there something about the Middle East broadly, Islamic societies, Iraq, Syria? What, what's going on? No, I don't think there is. I don't think that the, the notion of democracy and Islam, for example, are by any means mutually exclusive. I'm just, I'm, the more I talk about, you know, or attempt to sound like an expert, um, in uh, Middle East politics and democratization of same, 
the more of an idiot I'm likely to sound like. So I'm not going to pretend. Well, you know, I mean, you've you spent as much time as anyone studying this America, this failed American war in Iraq, and you've spent a lot of time reading about what's happened and what continues to happen in Iraq. Right. Well, I mean, I, I and I also I've, I've traveled a great deal throughout um, uh, the Middle East and African countries where um, there has been colonialization, authoritarian rule, uh, and uh, sort of um, a, a you know volleying back and forth between totalitarianism and gross instability, which leaves the public not with you know the body politic, not with this craving um, to uh, engage in participatory democracy. It, it it leaves them craving first and foremost for the violence to end. Secondly, for them to be able to feed their families, and well down the list is to be able to register their grievances or preferences at the ballot box. And so I do not believe in. Tunisia is a case in point. I mean, we will keep our fingers crossed there, but but uh, the, that there's something um, uh, inherently disabling about the Middle East as regards um, as regards uh, democracy, uh, but um, but for a host of reasons having to do with um, the manner of rule and uh, uh, versus tribalistic tem- tendencies and things like that have, have made it very, very complicated, much more so than, say, in the United States, where there have not been two, there were not two sectarian competitions taking, or a competition and two sectarian points of view taking place with Shia and Sunni and, and a subjugation of the one over the other. Um, so there's, there's a lot there. I do not think that it is, um, you know, a problem that is hopelessly intractable, but I also think that, that the notion, the hubris, the, that somehow um, we can um, impose um, a system like that, um, or that we can explode a country and expect that their impulse will be to devise a robust democracy, um, these are hubristic notions. Yeah, and if if there is one massive example of hubris it is the american invasion of of uh, of iraq where the greeks warned us about hubris uh, your your new book to start a war how it, it's it was came out last year it's in paperback now to start a war how the bush administration took america into a, a, iraq is still the book on the subject finally um robert when you came on the show last year august uh, 2020 of course Joe Biden wasn't president, um, and you were a little ambivalent on on Biden. You said to me that you weren't sure that Biden had really learned that much. Of course, he originally supported the Iraq war, then said that he made a mistake. How much do you think Biden really learned from Iraq? Is, is Joe Biden uh, capable of learning anything? Um, and how will we see the 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 consequences of Biden's learning or lack of learning in terms of his policy towards Iraq. We we began the show with these references about meetings between senior American military people and Amer- and the Iraqi prime minister. Uh, the 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 narrative ab- about Iraq, for better or worse, will be worked out under the the Biden presidency. Yeah, I mean, we'll see what um, how successful a president Joe Biden turns out to be. But I have been deeply impressed thus far by his, um, if nothing else, his ability to learn, to absorb lessons. I, so I do think, um, counter to what I um, was concerned about last August, that Biden has indeed 
digested um, the lessons from Iraq. Um, he is um, aware that that the um, that the world stage that he now you know has has come back onto in 2021 is quite different than the one that he exited in in January 2017. Uh, he is aware as well that that um, uh, that you know he has. Um, uh, a different kind of relationship with Putin than Trump did. That um, that he has uh, um, a true um, strategic, if not adversary, then at least um, uh, someone to reckon with in, in Xi in China. Uh, and uh, and no, I th I think you know to the degree that that um, one should be worried about Biden, it's not so much that um, he is cavalier or um, is um, living in some kind of dream world. It's um, that um, he is all too aware of the fact that, that the Republican Party uh, is desperate to deny him any kind of victories, um, both um, here and abroad, to the extent that they're able to deny him any. And that, um, uh, that and of course, you know, he's the oldest president we've ever had. And, and, uh, and um, I'm sure he's very cognizant of, of, you know, very aware of his own frailties. Uh, the rest of us are as well. And uh, but but no no I think that, that Biden um, is is actually showing a lot of nimbleness in his ability to take in um, the new realities that are confronting him. Well, that's nice to know that Joe Biden is learning. Perhaps I'm not sure. Maybe he read your book to start a war. One other book, uh, Robert, that Joe Biden, if he has time to watch this, uh, what should learn from? What else could Biden learn? from? What other book do you think has come out recently about America's new role in the world? Uh, I mentioned After the Fall. I'm not sure that would be the book. Um, anything else come out recently that really speaks to both the challenges and opportunities for America to reinvent itself, to get beyond these catastrophes of the early part of the 21st century in foreign policy? Andrew, this is going to tell you much more about me than about the literary landscape, because I'm now at work on a book about the Republican Party that Trump's presidency has left behind. And so I have been consuming things that relate to that. And of course, there is now this profusion of Trump um, books. That, well, yeah, that, we got to this, we got, we got to almost 34 minutes into this without mentioning Trump, but go on. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, right, and and uh, and so now I'm I'm kind of devouring all of those just to see what else is known out there. Which one is the best so far? What have you read on Trump that really uh, hit home? We've had we had so many books on Trump. We even had the book the book on books on Trump by the the post uh, literary reviewer Carlos yeah. Lazardo. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I was very impressed with Phil Rucker and uh, Carol Leonig's first book. And so I'm mm. eagerly awaiting that one, which should be out next week. I'm yeah, sure. they came. Uh, Carol came on the show, actually, to talk about the first book. And I want to get one of them on for the second book. Yeah, no, I, th I, I really think that was an outstanding book. And I think you had Jonathan Carl on as well. Yeah, you but, introduced me to Carl. He was excellent, too. Yeah, and, and I'm very eager to read his book, which is uh, going to be about the last year of the Trump presidency. Um, uh, the I'm just now finishing Michael Bender of the Wall Street Journal's book, which mm. um, which has gotten a lot of attention. That's the new one too, right? Well, the brand new one called "Frankly, We Did Win This Election." The the one that I'm gonna um, waste exactly no time on is Michael Wolf's book because uh, Wolf has already approved himself to be someone who um, is dubious with his sourcing, uh, writes things that fall into the category of too good to fact check, and and uh, there, um, there there may well be some stuff that is is good and valid in his book as there 
may have been in the other books, but having to invest the time that's necessary to read something and just wonder whether this is, you know, confected um, or just credulously um, put out there by Wolf because it just sounds like a juicy anecdote is like an exercise I've got no time to. Well, Rob, I have to get you on the show with Michael Wolf. You made a name for yourself writing about George Bush when the Tea Party came to town, dead certain. The new book, uh, To Start a War, about this Bush misadventure, catastrophe, tragedy in Iraq uh, is a must read. Uh, great to see you again. And I hope you'll come back on the show, Robert, to talk about the the new book about the Republican Party. I can't wait. Well, thank you very much. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Andrew. So you can bet I'll be back.